Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. Hey everybody, this is Vesna Luca, and you are listening to the Corporate Unplugged podcast for people shaping the future of business. On the show today, John Fullerton, an unconventional economist, impact investor and writer. And today we'll discuss regenerative economics and the universal patterns and principles that will shape the new economy. So John, welcome to my podcast. Hi Vesna, delighted to be with you today. So I want to kick off by asking this question. After a 20-year career on Wall Street, where you were managing director of JP Morgan, you chose to walk away, and that was some 20 years ago, with no plan, but with many questions. Why? I had been restless, I would say, for a number of years before finally leaving. And the the excuse for leaving was simply that JP Morgan merged with Chase and the culture that I had grown up in was clearly going to be gone. And so it was sort of a a moment to to take a break and and uh, rethink what I was doing. And how did people around you react? Well, starting with my wife, everyone was a bit concerned. No, I think I think people that knew me well knew that I was sort of yearning for something different. I had been frustrated with the the direction Wall Street was heading, the direction that Morgan was heading, just kind of restless in my own career. So it was it was sort of an inner voice that was telling me time to leave. In fact, I tried to leave once earlier and they kind of told me go back to work. So it was it was time. And to understand who John Fullerton is, I think it's always good to ask, you know, what is your passion? That thing which you're also willing to suffer for if needed. Well, my passion today is this sort of once in many centuries, I believe, transformation that we're now in the process of. And I think it's becoming more and more evident that we're in the middle of something very, very big, certainly bigger than anything in our lifetimes, but I I believe bigger than anything since the shift from medieval age to the modern age. So my passion is really to help try to make sense of this and help try to direct our economy in a direction that actually can work for both people and and the planet, but but in a serious way, not in a kind of at the edges incremental way, which is what most of the sustainability conversation has been reduced to, unfortunately. And you work at a capital institute that you've founded, and it's all, if I understood it well, about a real bold uh, reimagination of economics and finance. How can we use that muscle in service to life, right? At its core, it's the challenge that we we run the world on an economy that's dependent on exponential growth, and yet we live on a finite planet. And so there's a physics problem, and all of the issues we experience now from climate change to biodiversity loss, but also to the inequality crisis. These are all symptoms of an economic system that is, in a sense, no longer fit for purpose. Uh, And it's not about capitalism versus socialism. It's a much deeper issue than that. And so Capital Institute was really a place I I set up to to convene and engage with this question because I found the universities were were woefully inadequate in terms of what they were 
what they were doing and how they were wrestling with this question, or even if they were even aware of the question. It was really just a place to, uh, to begin the inquiry. Imagine 10 years from now, 2032, what's the future you wish to see then? You know, how does it look like and, and how does it feel like? Who's there? What's happening? Many more people were awake to the scale of the challenge and to the implications for the profound change that was needed. And the old kind of institutional rigidities would be rapidly breaking down, which would release energy and potential for a, a much more intelligent, aligned with life's principles way of organizing society. But I, I think we'll be in the thick of it in 10 years. In what actionable way do you help via the work you're doing? As the crises deepen, we're innately eager to act for good reason. And yet, if I had to distill the essence of my work, it would be to help us pause before we act so that we act intelligently. And and I think, you know, part of the problem is that we, we're trapped in this reductionist problem-solving mindset, and we're eager to solve problems and act. But without a more holistic understanding of the issues, including the profound challenge of exponential growth on a finite planet, that there is no action that we can take that will address that issue without addressing that issue. And the actions we're, we're taking, unfortunately, often make the issue worse. So, for example, you know, we obviously need to transition to an alternative renewable energy system. But we haven't really thought through the ecological footprint, the carbon footprint, simply of that investment requirement. And if we're already breaching the boundaries of the planet, we need to actually make more room to mine the materials, to move the materials, to cement the windmills in place, to, to you know, the metal to put up the solar panels. All of that has a footprint. And if we're out of footprint, we need to acknowledge that we need to find that, in a sense, space, that footprint from somewhere else in order to do the transition we must do. But none of us are talking about that. We're talking about this investment challenge as all we need to do is mobilize the money and everything will be good. Well, that's true. We need to mobilize the money. But we also need to accelerate the reduction in our footprint from other areas in order to make room for that. And, you know, they're just endless examples of, of our problem solving, getting us into deeper problems than, than the problems we are trying to solve. And, you know, the, the, the example that um, is somewhat controversial, but I always like to point out is the green revolution. You know, what we've done in industrial agriculture without meaning to, without understanding it, is we've, quote unquote, solved or or worked you know significantly on the quote unquote poverty problem but at the expense of massively exacerbating the climate change problem and yet we didn't understand that when we pursued the green revolution because we didn't understand the important role that the soils play in sequestering carbon and now we're, we've turned massive areas of grasslands and farmland into into sources of carbon when Naturally, they work as sinks of carbon, and 
And because they're so vast, small changes in that vast amount of landscape has a systemic impact on the net carbon in the atmosphere. So we're, we're, we're solving problems and creating bigger problems. And so my plea to us is to slow down and, and learn to think in a more holistic way and see these issues holistically and interconnectedly. And, and then we act with urgency. Your work is very much guided by the universal patterns and principles that describe how literally all healthy living systems we have around us sustain themselves in the real world and that, and that they actually work. But how can you, can you give an example of how does it work? And, and, and also, you know, have we been like sleepwalking in the sense that if it's there to read from the healthy living systems around us, how come we've invented something else? That's a great question. Well, it's, it's, let me start with it, with an example. So th there are no living systems. Life itself is, is immensely complex and it's impossible to reduce it to a finite number of principles or qualities. Just to clarify, when I use the word principle, I don't mean ethical principle. I mean descriptive principle, like, like, you know, there are laws of gravity and there are, there are first principles of how life works, like, the importance of a healthy metabolism, healthy inputs, healthy circulation, healthy outputs is a description of any healthy living system. So for me, the, the principle I talk about is, is robust circulation. So that's what I mean by principle. You know, I might, I might use another principle that, that I talk about that most people that have thought about how living systems work would, would certainly agree is, is this notion of right relationship or relationships of mutuality or reciprocity, which is a, a, um, a principle that most indigenous cultures would, would hold up as, as fundamental. Right relationship doesn't mean compete to the death. It means collaborate and, and work in proper, healthy, mutually beneficial relationships. So for example, Our, our, our feet don't compete with our arms for circulation of oxygen. They're both working in right relationship with each other in order for our, our human body to thrive. But we've landed on this idea of a competitive capitalist system where competition is the core idea. And it, and it turns out in, in nature, in living systems, different species compete with each other until they can find their own little niche where they can collaborate and not have to compete. So actually competition is an in, is sort of a an immature stage of nature and and of course there's still competition in nature. It's not a either or thing, but you know the the giraffe has a long neck so it doesn't have to compete with a zebra for food. And and so when when Darwin used the phrase survival of the fittest which Actually, he didn't coin that term, but when he did use it, what he meant was survival of the one who fits best into the system, like a puzzle fits into, a, you know, it finds its place in the system. And yet we, you know, we've been taught in school and we were taught on the soccer pitch or the football pitch that competition is, is our innate nature. Well, that turns out to simply be wrong. And, and yet we play the game of economics as if, It's a, it's a massive competition. And you could argue the natural extension of competition is war. And uh, if one operates in a very competitive industry like finance or 
really any big mature business now, you know, it can feel like war. It certainly feels violent. But that's because we pursue scale and growth and bigness as a goal rather than well-being or something that's more collaborative. And and how we shift our mindset to to fall in line with the way life actually works is not a trivial challenge, but that's the challenge I've chosen to work on. So is a lot of your work geared towards making people kind of understand the bigger whole and how it's all interconnected rather than saying, do this, do that? Yeah. And I, I also have learned that I can't make people do anything. <laughs> What I, the way I would describe it is that we... There's an invitation for people who innately sense something is profoundly wrong. And the invitation is to come and explore this with us in, in, a, in a sort of a discovery journey. Because we don't have all the answers. But there's a, there's a fundamental fork in the road between carrying on with this competitive extractive paradigm we're in and trying to soften the edges a bit. A lot of people are working on that. A lot of that work is vitally important. Because if nothing else, it buys us more time. It makes things less destructive. But most people I know that have worked on that for anywhere between five years and 10 years are, are kind of waking up to, you know, this isn't going to work. The math isn't going to work. I like to describe one of my heroes was Ray Anderson. He was an industrialist in the United States who was early on the sustainability challenge. And he used to talk about climbing Mount Sustainability. And, he, and they began this journey very much as an incremental chip away, eliminate fossil fuels, eliminate waste and all this stuff, which is all great. But I liken climbing Mount Fuji, where each step you take, the next one gets steeper. And ultimately, you get near the top and it's icy and slippery and you can't quite make it to the top. And so we need to sort of transcend this incremental change into a, you know, out of this reductionist problem-solving mindset, which is great to deal with things that are complicated, like designing an iPhone is complicated. And the reductionist method of logic, which dates to the beginning of the scientific revolution, is brilliant at, at addressing questions that are complicated. Designing a bicycle is complicated. We now have figured out how to design a bicycle. It hasn't changed much in a long time. But living systems are complex, not complicated. And there's a world of difference between complexity and what's complicated. And complexity can't be predicted. It's the future is unknowable. Everything's connected to everything. And, and one of the things that we are experiencing now is this, you know, what's, what's going to come next that we couldn't have imagined. And that's because, you know, going back to the financial crisis, a mortgage crisis in the United States turns out to be, you know, an, a time bomb blowing up in Greece. And, and no one would have thought those two are as connected. And, and this is true of the current supply chain crisis in our global economy. How is it that a pandemic could trigger a supply chain crisis around the world, compounded by a war in Ukraine? These things are complex. And, and, There's a lot we can learn from living systems about how to not manage complexity, but to work with it. And, and there are, again, principles like, for example, in, in living systems, we don't optimize efficiency. It turns out in living systems, you have to balance 
efficiency, and resiliency. Well, we're learning that lesson the hard way. As our globalization trend has kind of run its natural course, and we're now realizing that our supply chains are not resilient enough. Well, had we understood living systems, we wouldn't have let them become so efficient in the first place at the expense of resiliency, and we wouldn't be suffering as much as we are today. And, and who is your typical client? Our core offering today is a course. It's an eight-week course. We just finished the first cohort. I was really, really pleased. We had 350 people from 25 countries. You know, it takes, it takes an eight-week course or something like that to really delve into this, this shift. It's a mind shift. It's a heart shift. It's a consciousness shift. It's not something that you can go do a TED Talk or a, or a you know, keynote address and, and, and really have people experience and and it was it was amazing. I mean, we had you know people come out of it. You know, one one executive at at Patagonia said, "I will never be able to see the world the same way, nor my place in it." Thank you for this course, kind of thing. And so, again, I think people are showing up, recognizing intuitively that there's something big shifting. The word regeneration is now kind of a buzzword in the business community, but. Regeneration is not just a different word. Regeneration is the, the word that explains how it's the process that enables life to be sustainable. It, it is a process. It's, it's not a law like the law of gravity, but it is a descriptive process of how life sustains itself. And, and if we're to have an economy that can sustain itself, much less enable humans to thrive embedded in the biosphere, it's, it strikes me as common sense that we should try to align with this regenerative process that has proven to work in the natural world. Anything that's moving us more in alignment with how life works, I think, is, is directionally correct. And, and, of course, it's not going to happen in, in 10 years. It's a rest-of-our-lifetime project. Do you see a lot of good washing and greenwashing around you, or do you think there is a tendency that that will disappear gradually uh, very soon because it's so transparent in a way. Well, it's interesting, you know, the 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 whole eruption in the ESG space now, you know, the environmental, social and governance which is, you know, it's it's sort of sustainability metrics for corporations initially as a kind of a risk a risk assessment tool. And now I don't know if this is if this is translated, uh, yeah, I'm sure it is actually in, in, across Europe now, but it's become a hugely controversial topic. But it's 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 just crazy to me because anyone who thought that measuring ESG metrics was going to change the the economic system in the first place was was not thinking clearly enough. It, it's of course important to measure sort of non financial metrics in in assessing a a corporation's performance and risk. By the way, we need to do the same with the capital flowing uh, out of governments. Governments have a huge role in the global economy, particularly the infrastructure investments they make. And, and we, we don't have the concept of ESG for government spending, but we should. In fact, it's probably more fundamental than ESG for many corporations who don't have that big of a, of a footprint. And the ones that do have a big footprint, we don't need metrics. We know oil companies are in the business of selling fossil fuels and that's all we need to know why why do we ask Exxon to 
to develop ESG metrics, it's 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 beyond me to understand. But but I, I don't. I, there, there is already greenwashing. I don't want to name you know highlight any individual company, but there's a there's a reconciliation process we need to go through before we can be serious about this. And and if you're if you've built a global business on an extractive on an extractive business model, whether you're selling advertisements on the internet and selling the data to other people, that's extractive, or whether you're a big box store and have gone into communities and essentially gutted the 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 local economy in order to uh, compete with the less quote unquote less efficient merchants. You know, all of these business models were reductionist and therefore effective in a narrow context of optimizing, call it shareholder value for, for a long period of time. But they've gutted the, they've gutted much of what's actually important, whether it's, you know, our, in, in the case of the advertising business models, they've, they've gutted our democracies. And in the case of the, and by the way, empowered participation is a living system principle. So if we do something through our economy that destroys our ability to, to have empowered participation in the governance of our, of our, of our nations, it's in conflict with how life works. You know, again, going back to our toes, our toes are empowered to participate in the circulation of oxygen. That's not just important for our toes. That's important for our whole our whole being. So if we have a business model that guts the democratic process through manipulation, you know, selling data and, and what's happening with social media, that's in direct conflict with how healthy living systems sustain themselves. So that's not something we need to kind of measure and report on. And we actually need the courage to say that's actually against our collective interest and radically slash that that business activity because it's it's inherently destructive and and I would argue that the rollout of all of these big box business models that go into communities and gut those communities that's in violation of the principle I call honoring community in place and I like to quote Wendell Berry who said there are no unsacred places there are only sacred places and desecrated places and we have businesses that are desecrating communities. And and we need a, you know, before we all talk about regeneration, we need sort of a reconciliation process that says, actually, yes, that we didn't do that because we were bad people. We did that because we were ignorant about how that would affect the health of the whole society. So, you know, depending on the company, I mean, it, you know, our favorite villain, of course, is Exxon, who, who worked in denial proactively worked in climate denial for decades. There needs to be a reconciliation of that fact before we can talk about whether Exxon can be a sustainable company. And even if they start investing in wind farms, we need an honest reconciliation, just like, frankly, there was in South Africa as a, as a way to move forward. But if we go back to you, I'm thinking what, what, what transformational points in your life have influenced you the most so far? It's the end of the 20th century, beginning of the 21st century, I walk in and quit my job with no plan on what I'm going to do next. And it would have been roughly March or April of 2001. I decided to take the summer off. The first thing I did was join some friends sailing across the Atlantic Ocean. 
and we got hit by a humpback whale. And the boat was damaged enough that it had to be rescued by the Canadian Coast Guard. We were a thousand miles east of Newport, Rhode Island. Coincidentally, I was reading Moby Dick at the time. So that was sort of a, I don't know, some kind of a wake-up call from the depths of the ocean. And then the first day, I, I actually had already been involved in what we now call impact investing while I was still at J.P. Morgan. And I was investing in education and alternative energy in, in Morgan Capital. And, and there's, a, there's a big movement in the U.S. called the charter school movement, which is essentially privatizing education as a way to bring innovation and capital into a, a very broken public education system. And so I, I, the first meeting I set up for myself after the summer was with a guy who ran a different education company, and his offices were on Lower Broadway in Manhattan. And the meeting was at 9.30 in the morning on a beautiful sunny day that happened to be 9-11. So I was in the subway at downtown near Brooklyn Bridge when the first plane hit. And I got to the street from the subway a second after the second plane hit. And it was close enough that it was a very different experience than watching it on TV. And it took me all day to get home. And I had my, my kids were all pretty young at the time. So here I was, you know, unemployed, didn't know what I wanted to do, didn't know why I didn't want to do what I used to do. I'd been hit by a whale. And now I experienced this all in the course of, you know, a few months. And it was the turn of the century. The 9-11 experience pushed me into what I call sort of a deep think period. I just started voraciously reading books and started learning about all the stuff that I was completely ignorant about, beginning with the fact that there's a, a that the that the ecological crisis was one interconnected crisis, not, you know, save the whales was connected to save the owls was connected to climate change. And, and I didn't know anything about climate change, but in the years following that, learned about it. And I learned there was something called complexity science. I'd, I'd never heard of that before, but it turns out you can go to MIT and get a PhD in complexity science. It just opened my eyes to a, a whole world that I, I was completely ignorant of. And just a few years later, this kind of financial crisis hit, right? Yeah, sort of ironic. The, um, so I, st I started writing about this And I didn't know what I was saying yet, but but I was I was questioning the for, the core tenets of capitalism. But it wasn't about capitalism versus socialism. It was much deeper than that. And then the financial crisis happened, and so all of a sudden, my friends said, "Oh, you mean, you must not be crazy after all." But in fact, the financial crisis was really little had little to do with the issues I was really wrestling with. One way to think about the financial crisis, other than it was built on a lot of mortgage fraud, but there was, again, this pursuit of efficiency of, of capital. It, it was conceived, you know, we, we assumed that if, if you could get super liquid capital markets and reduce the cost of a mortgage for everybody, including people that couldn't afford the mortgage, that had to be good because that was more efficient. And the economists all celebrate efficiency. But we did that at the expense of resiliency again. And, and I can show you a diagram that, that shows from real data that living systems balance efficiency and resiliency. So the principle, the core principle is balance. And we know that from all kinds of parts of our lives. You know, the balance of masculine and feminine energy obviously is, is essential to a healthy society. 
but we have a, an economy that's dominated by masculine energy. And, and, and turns out that's not working out so well. And you don't fix that by, you know, putting a few people, a few women on the board and ticking a box and, and saying you've solved your masculine feminine energy problem because, you know, in order to survive in the corporate world, you need to largely behave in a very aggressive, competitive, masculine way. And that doesn't mean women can't be competitive. I'm not saying that, but, but, but we all have, men and women have both a masculine and a feminine energy and they're out of balance in our economy and it's causing a lot of destruction. If you would assume that you have all doors open to you and, and all kind of kinds of resources available, what would you kind of rush to innovate or change, you know, be it in, in, in the world that you're operating in right now or elsewhere? Um, hmm. If you had the magic wand kind of thing. The magic wand, king for the day, <laughs> yes. king of the world. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting. I, I, I kind of operate in, in two in two domains. One is with my own capital. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a quite active impact investor. And I try to invest in projects that if they work and, and scale, they would actually matter to the, the issues I care about. So they're, they're, they're either aligned with resilient cash flows like renewable energy projects, or they're kind of more moonshot. Boy, if, if this idea could replicate across the world, um, it would have a huge systemic impact. And, and I could give you a couple examples of those. So on, on the one hand, I would say, boy, if I had, you know, real money, like a billion dollars, I could do what I'm currently doing at much larger scale. And I was asked once when I was giving a talk on, on my, my, my sort of regenerative investment approach, you know, someone said, well, would it matter if pension funds did what you do? And I stopped for a minute. And, you know, what I do is, you know, I don't have a lot of, I don't, I don't have any money invested in ESG funds. I, I have the only public stocks I own are very specifically chosen because of what they do. And a lot of stuff is projects, private, private investments in, in stuff, agriculture and energy related and real estate. And I actually think if billions of dollars moved out of the stock market and into what I'm doing, a, it would benefit, it would do better in the long run because I don't think, you know, I, I said this before the current stock market crash, but I just think the, the stock market is a bit of a house of cards because exponential growth on a finite planet is priced into every stock. And if it turns out that's not possible, there's just going to be headwinds against certainly the high valuation, you know, extended valuation companies. Now, maybe that's some of the winds out of that that issue now, but it's it's always it's going to be there for the next decade. Of course, there are going to be many innovation innovative companies that are public that will do great, but the overall market is is going to be facing headwind. So one one answer to your question is, boy, if you know, if I had real capital, just do what I'm doing on on a much vaster scale. But honestly, I think the most important thing that I'm doing is is I'm part of a group of people no one's going to do this on their own, that are helping to shine the light on a new story. So if I, if maybe if I were king of the day, king for the day, I would, you know, I would recruit the top 10 filmmakers and game makers in the world to create the new story that would just sort of blow away the box office and blow away the 
Like it'd be the game that every young person wanted to play and it would be the film that everyone wanted to see. And it would have, you know, Star Trek 10 sequels and it would become the, the dominant new story. And it would be a story of our, our proper place in, on this planet and in the universe. And our economy would respond and adapt to that new story in, in a magical way faster than anyone could imagine, just like no one imagined the Berlin Wall would fall down until it did. And and if it's possible, as a, let's say, a teaser, what is that narrative that would come through these films, for example? You know, I, I think it's, 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 it's that humanity is a part of nature, not apart from nature. We are a part of a unfolding evolving universe that 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 is a that is moving directionally it's not static it it began but it's it's spiraling forward and we have we are not the enemy of the environment we we are part of there is no such thing as the environment we are the environment and that our challenge at this moment if you if you sort of scale out to longer term time frames than we normally think we, you know, the, the scientific revolution was launched with Copernicus's discovery that the sun doesn't rotate around the earth, it's the other way around. And so suddenly we, we had agency to figure out stuff that we didn't know before. So we didn't need to rely on the church to tell us what's true and what's not and what's right and what's wrong. And if we followed the church, we would go to heaven. And if we didn't, we go to hell. We suddenly had agency and we could figure stuff out. And the method we used to do that was this reductionist logic. So it, it created great progress, but at the expense of losing sight of the whole. And, and the whole is that we're part of this unfolding story. We're a brilliant part of it, but we need to behave in a responsible way in order not to undermine that story. And our economy, we're sort of trapped in this adolescent you know, more money, more stuff gives me happiness, which is a very low consciousness understanding of humanity. So the, the story is the story of humanity growing up out of its adolescence and, and, and seeing a, a, a higher purpose, a higher consciousness, and, and, and ultimately a, a happier way of existing on this amazing magical planet. And and the knuckleheads will stop thinking that we should go inhabit Mars because we've trashed we've trashed Earth. Uh, I'm in favor of learning about Earth and and working with this magical blue marble. Yeah. I, I would like to be part of that narrative, I'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're not ready to go to Mars? <laughs> no. <laughs> I think it's nice over here. But uh, I was thinking about, you know, leaders and so on that, that are typically listening to this podcast, like what can the, what kind of one key piece of advice can we give them or do you want to give them? And so is there anything in particular that pops up in your mind? Well, I guess, I guess a couple of things pop up. First of all, I, I think we have the wrong idea of leaders. I, the leaders that I admire are 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 not necessarily the leaders that we think of when we think of leaders. Interestingly, I'm, I'm, you know, in in our course we have a whole one of the weeks one week session is on leadership, and not by accident 
all three of my guests that week are women, just to just for starters. So I, I think I think we all have to be leaders in this transition, and and the leaders I admire most are are unsung heroes uh, working in the trenches more than the you know the hero the hero leader. I think the hero leader is is a thing of the past. But having said that, hero leaders today hold immense power, which is part of the problem, but it's reality. If I had advice or, or more a, a plea to our hero leaders, it would be to slow down, take a breath, and listen to your heart more than your head, and have the courage, have the courage to listen to your heart. If, if I did one thing... Like you asked me a lot about why I left. I left because I listened to my heart and, and it took courage to do that because I couldn't explain it to anyone, including myself. It was a painful number of years after that, trying to figure out why I did that. But it was the best decision I ever made for myself and for my family, for my kids. So my advice is listen to your heart. That's a beautiful and important advice. And then somebody's going to listen and say, yeah, but, but how? How do I do that? We all have a heart, of course, but how do we connect to it? I, I, that's a great, I don't have an answer to that. I, I'm not sure there is an answer to that. I, I think the first thing, here's what's coming up for me. Every time a friend of mine or someone I know says they've just quit their job or they've, you know, they've, they've walked away, they've decided they, they, they need to do something new. I, It's immediate. I immediately get a, that's great. You know, I, I think, I think having the courage to stop what we're doing and, and create space no, no one told me what to read. I literally walked into bookstores at night after dinner and wandered around and books would find me, literally find me like a bag of books. I found my way through a, a, a yearning for reading stuff that I'd never read before. But, you know, other people will find it by taking a, a walk in nature or, a, you know, climbing the Appalachian Trail or climbing a mountain. I think, I think everyone, that's why I say listen to your heart. I mean, I think we all know this. It's innate. I, I know it's innate. And I know that we crush that innate wisdom. And I know our culture forces us to, because we need to make a living. We need to pay the mortgage. We got to get our kids to school. And it's a luxury to be able to do this. I, I, I admit that. But I've seen people do it who, who don't have the, the luxury of doing it without keeping their day job. I, I think it's really just a question of opening up, opening up our heart and listening to what's deep inside us. I, the other thought that comes up is, you know, we're so obsessed with our careers. I mean, who the hell says a career is important in the scheme of things? I mean, what is a career in, at the end of the day? That's, it. That's our ego. What do you think now is the most important thing for companies to focus on? It very much will be different for every company. The way I try to help companies see how to implement this living systems framework is to sort of do it in layers. Most of the most of the work in sustainability is out at the product layer. Like what do you make? What do you sell? What's the supply chain? But really the the most critical layer is the inner layer 
of a company, just like it is for a human. So the inner layer of a company we could define as culture or purpose or meaning. If you're a young company or a startup, you get to define that. And, and often an entrepreneur's own essence will manifest in the company that they found. That's great. It's in a sense much easier. It's a reflection of, of who they are. And we need, you know, gazillions of those because the, you know, what, what will happen is the big old guard companies will, you know, in a sense, adapt or die. And I don't mean die like literally die, but they'll adapt and morph into some new form or they will go out of business. And so to me, the energy is in the rebirth, the new companies that either come out of the old companies or are created from scratch. And to me, the most important thing there is to get the culture and the purpose crystal clear and stick with it. You know, Patagonia just restated their mission statement. It used to be, you know, to make our stuff and do the least damage possible, blah, blah, blah. And now it is simply, and I'll get, to, I'll butcher the words, but it's essentially to to save life on our home planet or something like that. And, and emphasis on home planet, just, just to be clear. And so I, I think culture is the most important thing. It was why I stayed at JP Morgan for 20 years. It had a great culture until it eroded. But then there's layers, you know, the next layer would be governance. And, you know, the governance work we've done, you know, there's a huge amount of effort we need to think about what governing global corporations, the responsibility that goes with that. And with all the talk of ESG and putting balancing boards with some diversity candidates, you know, we're nowhere in terms of governance of institutions that are literally destroying life as we know it on this planet and and all in the guise of, yeah, but we have a responsibility to shareholders. I mean, that whole thing needs to be rethought. And then there's, there's you know, the capital structure of a company and what, what the capital structure ena enables it to do. If you think about leveraged buyouts, they massively increase brittle, the brittleness of a company. They decrease resiliency. So, you know, we tax subsidize something that causes corporations to become less resilient right at the time when we need them to be uh, much more resilient. That needs to be rethought. And then finally, you get to the products and services. So, you know, there's, a, there's lifetimes of work to be done. But to me, it begins with getting a clear compass on, on what this regenerative process implies for, for an enterprise. So my final question to you, John, is this one. What do you think the world needs most at this time? I think it's this awakening. You know, I, I think we're... We're stuck in a in a way of being and doing and running around and and you know I think the pandemic has sort of shocked us all into pausing and rethinking and you know in many ways despite all of the the pain and suffering and agony that it created maybe what the world needed now was a pandemic to wake up help us wake up so the the universe has delivered mm. to us just what we need mm. I suspect that'll continue to happen. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's not good that we have all these problems, but they for sure will, will wake us up. And I think in general that what, what we need is like this um, missing a voice from people who care and who say very clearly and, and loudly that we have to do something about economic equality, education and the environment. But if we let these three things go in the wrong direction, nothing else will matter very much, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. So John, John, how was it to be on the podcast? Oh, it was wonderful. 
I, I enjoy doing these conversations much more than standing on a stage and pontificating. So thank you for including me. I was excited to see the list of folks that have come before me. I, I could easily spend days listening to many of the great voices you have. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for sharing. And uh, to find out more, you'll find links and show notes on corporateunplugged.com. So thanks for listening. And uh, to make it easy for you to find and listen to this show again, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And please share this episode with one person you know would benefit from hearing it. Please rate and review this podcast if you enjoyed it. I'm Vesna Luca, and you've been listening to Corporate Unplugged. And until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao.